You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is a world famous comedy theater and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance and the same practices that have made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Vice President of Creative Strategy, Innovation, and Business Development at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, discovering connections, and building a better future. This is Getting to Yes And. You want to come see us talk live on the Getting to Yes And podcast? Well, I'm going to be talking to Keegan-Michael Key, Second City alum, and L. Key about their new book, The History of Sketch Comedy, A Journey Through the Art and Craft of Humor, on October 5th at 7 p.m., the Francis Parker School. This is part of the Chicago Humanities Festival. If you want to get tickets, go to chicagohumanities.org. Uh, today, we welcome back Amy Edmondson to the podcast. Amy is the Novartis Professor of Leadership and Management at the Harvard Business School, renowned for her research on psychological safety for over 20 years. Her award-winning work has appeared in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, Psychology Today, Fast Company, Harvard Business Review, and more. Named by Thinkers 50 in 2021 as the number one management thinker in the world, Edmondson's TED Talk, How to Turn a Group of Strangers into a Team, has been viewed over three million times. Um, she has a fantastic new book. Um, it is called Right Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing Well. I love this conversation. I think you will, too. Enjoy the pod. Unsaid. Days can't be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Amy Edmondson, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. When I give my various keynotes around the country, I often talk about the concept of psychological safety as it relates to the practice of improv. And it amazes me that although almost everyone is familiar with the concept of psychological safety, they don't know the origin story, which is how you begin your new book. So I'm hoping you can tell us that story, which begins in June of 1993, I believe, at Harvard. Um, and you're a student in the new PhD program in organizational behavior, and you're confronted with, a, with what appears to be a research failure, right? It is a research failure. Let's okay. let's make no mistake. So I suppose the story starts about six months earlier when I'm invited to join this um, rather ambitious research project on medical error. And the the idea, the main aim of the overall study, led by a couple of physicians, was to was to assess the you know the actual rate of medication error and the adverse drug events that happen as a result of human error. And so the only reason I was asked in was that I was um, studying teams and they thought that I would be able to assess the teamwork properties of the patient care teams and then relate teamwork effectiveness to error rates, which has a lot of you know good foundation from a conceptual point of view and in fact was a finding that had been established in the aviation context you know good teams were more able to sort of safely fly the planes in in simulators in experiments 
Okay. So I do my part. I measure the relationship. I mean, I measure the uh, serve the team properties of these uh, teams. Um, month one of a six month study. I then have to wait, wait, wait until the um, trained medical investigators over a six month period, kind of an every other day basis, are going to the units to collect data on errors. All I have to do is be patient. I'll get the error data. I'll put them into the model. And with the teamwork data, we I will see a correlation. Guess what? There was a correlation, a statistically significant correlation, but looking at it, I'm staring at it and it's just, it can't be true. It's in the wrong direction. But the data are saying that higher, that the good teams have higher error rates, not lower. So this was either going to be a very dismal end to my, you know, potential research career, um, or something else. Um, ultimately it became something else. It became psychological safety because in the process of trying to make sense of this weird result, you know, after doing all of the, okay, where did I make a mistake? How did I, you know, how did I enter this wrong? What have you realizing nowhere? Um, in the process of trying to figure out why might the better teams, and I didn't doubt the, validity of the team instrument it wasn't developed by me. It was sort of well-known. Why might they have higher error rates, not lower? And then it suddenly occurred to me, you know, maybe these better teams are more able and willing to talk about error. You know, errors are threatening, you know, errors are embarrassing. So um, I thought, okay, that's it. Right. And then I mentioned this right away to the heads of the study who were as you can imagine, not happy to have that interpretation because their aim, remember, was to show the sort of definitive error rate. Yeah. And what I was saying implied that we weren't, A, we weren't getting them all, but B, there were systematic differences in the validity of the error data based on what I'll now call interpersonal climate in the patient care teams. Mm-hmm. And, you know, interpersonal climate was not something they had spent a lot of time thinking about. And and yet, to me, it started to feel very, um, very likely true, right? That the that teams in the same organization can have different interpersonal climates. Okay, you know, I won't go through the whole long story of how I managed to collect data to show that indeed there were different in this in this context, but it involved a research assistant who didn't know, you know, was completely blind to all of these hypotheses. And we really were able to show that there were real differences in interpersonal climate around, you know, speaking up about error, asking for help, those very threatening interpersonal behaviors. I later called that climate difference psychological safety. Ultimately, that variable and the measure I developed uh, for it gave rise to a very robust research literature in in social psychology and organizational behavior and healthcare, uh, by the way. So it is a thing, right? It's a thing that teams and and team members have real differences in terms of their um, belief that it's okay, you know, to speak up, to ask for help, to admit an error, all of those things that you all do for a living, frankly, you know, but, but so, so it was one of those, you know, Happy failures, right? And I'm not going to say all failures are happy, but it was a, it was a, it was something I didn't want. I didn't expect. I didn't want. I thought it was the end of my, you know, potential research career. Of course, it wasn't. In fact, it was the beginning of something much better. Right? The ultimate, you know, the ultimate finding was much more interesting than the one I went in to test. 
Yeah, we have this phrase in our work, you need to make mistakes work for you improvisationally because they're inevitable to happen. And when I, and I really should, you should be getting a royalty from me with regard to how often <laughs> I talk about this. Because when I reveal to the audience that it's not that the sort of bad teams were making less mistakes, they were simply not reporting them. There is a hush in the audience. It's one of these things that like a really late, like landing a great joke, everyone kind of understands it at the same time. And there's a correlation between a, a joke and an insight. Uh, and, and so it's a really sort of lovely moment where people are like, oh, of course. And I think sometimes, and you know this, and I know this from our work too, is this, this, these two words, psychological safety, are so bandied about that sometimes people forget what they truly relate to. And this book is, is, is quite amazing in, in that you, you really go like, let's talk about errors. Let's talk about mistakes. Let's talk about failures. Let's use, oh, let's, let's look at the entire vernacular because words are important. Mm -hmm. Our metaphors have failed us before culturally. And I think this is so important at this, you must feel this too, like yeah. how prescient, right? To write this book now when we are living in, I mean, I know Colbert coined truthiness 10 years ago, but it's, it's wild out there. It is wild out there. And, and, it, and you're right. There is a real relationship between failures and mistakes and mishaps and sort of lack of truth. Because I, in a way, what the, what the book is arguing is we've got to be willing to confront mistakes and failures head on because that's the only way to learn the lessons that they, that they bring. And, and those are incredibly valuable lessons. I mean, some are more valuable than others, but if, if you don't, and we're, we're, we're instinctively kind of prone to wanting to just turn away from them to not, you know, to finding our anything about our shortcomings to be sort of um, not enjoyable to contemplate. And yet that means we miss, we miss out on the, on the, on the great value. You mentioned the aviation study and I just want to, so point this out is really interesting. So, so Fauci, I think, was the person who did that. That's yeah, Fouché. Fouché, thank Fouché. you. Um, and they discovered that teams who logged several days flying together, the fatigued teams, performed better than the well-rested teams. Uh, the fatigued individuals made more errors than their well-rested counterparts, but because they had time spent working together through multiple flights, they made fewer errors as a team. That is so crucial because that this and this is what I see. Here at Second City, six actors who normally have worked together for two years, improvising every single night, and and it 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 makes it appear effortless, and it is so not. If you take and we tape every improv set, and if you watch that, you could like uh, mistake, mistake, mistake. They called them by the wrong name. They did. You can see all that, and it doesn't matter because they just move on and move on and find ways to make to incorporate it into their day to day activity. That's right. They use it. Right. They use yeah. it. They, they catch it, they notice it. And then I, I want to, you know, in real life, we, we, we try to correct that which is wrong, but it's, that's probably not the right word for improv. It's more like we use it. We work yeah. with it. We go forward instead of backward. Mm -hmm. And that's hard and, 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 and hard in work cultures. And, and you mentioned this in terms of the response that you got initially from the folks at the hospital. And, and of course, because I just, it's anathema to American business and probably all business that, 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 that yeah. you would ad admit the failure, and yet the research is so overwhelming in this area that we get it wrong. But Nick Epley says something like, "We get it wrong seventy percent of the time, even just our day to day." Right, and 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 we're that's not going. That number isn't going down. 
It's oh. only up as the world is more interconnected, more complicated, and you know more complex. And and so you know the future, certainly the future of work is going to be full of failures. That's a given. So the only real choice you have is how do you how you respond to them. Mm. Uh, you talk in the first chapter, which is called "Chasing the Right Kind of Wrong." You say, "quote Most of us fail at failure for three reasons: aversion, confusion, and fear." I feel it's important because you're setting up groundwork for us to then understand why right, we do the things right. we do. So yeah. we, let's talk about each of sure. those. Sure. You know, and, and they may not be the perfect words, but aversion refers to a kind of emotional response we have to failure, right? We just, yeah. we want to look away. If, if it's ours, alas, sometimes we're not so um, averse to it when it's someone else's, but that, that's, uh, you know, again, very primal, very emotional response. We want to succeed, not fail. Confusion relates to the fact that we don't all have good ways of making distinctions among types of failure, mm-hmm. you know, so that we can actually feel good about the, what I'll call the intelligent failures that they're, those are discoveries, right? Those aren't bad and shameful in any way. Of course, human error isn't bad or shameful either, but still, when you have a better way, better language for separating the sort of useful discoveries in new territory from the, okay, human error, let's see if we can do better, create maybe some more, more failure proofing in our, in our lives and so on. You know, I think we have, we, when we reduce the confusion, we also reduce the, the, the pain of failure. And then finally, fear is the, is the sort of social part. Fear is the, um, the bit about we, we worry about what failure says about us. We worry about what most specifically what other people think about us, right? We, we want to be seen as winners, not losers. And so we are very afraid and we're afraid of that. You know, we're afraid of what other people think of us because we at a very early, you know, stage in our history as a species that really could mean the difference between life and death, you know, getting rejected from the community, um, you're going to be likely to die of exposure or starvation or both. So, you know, so we, we have this kind of um, very hardwired need to be approved of. And I think it's important to also mention, because I know this is true for my world. I'm, I'm certain you're going to say the same thing, which is it doesn't matter how much you know about this. It doesn't matter how successful you are. I have tons of famous friends who still battle these things today and they are on your TV every night and they're considered heroes and gods. And, and my, my friend Renee Fleming, you know, opera diva to the world, you know, was, was took two years off because of this stuff, just fear of judgment. Judgment. Yeah. Judgment is exactly the right word. We are, we are afraid of judgment and, you know, we just have to take a deep breath and say, you know, that's holding us back. Right. That's when you're afraid of judgment, you're paralyzed. You, I mean, not literally, but you're, you're, you're Close. very risk averse, right? Yeah. Very unwilling to do the kinds of things that help you stretch and grow and, you know, make progress going forward in your lives and, and, and work. Um, and all of those, you know, all of those moments of holding back, um, ultimately are, you're the one who, who suffers, not, you know, you don't gain from it, no. even though. It does in the moment. You might feel like you gained from it. So one of the solves here, which I, I consider to be a superpower, is reframing. Yes. Uh, right? I mean, that that is... Yep. It, That's it, number it's, one, right? Okay. 
It's it, reframing is sort of skill number one, and it can be learned. And my favorite example of reframing, which is in the book, is that the the um, there's research on this that silver medalists um, in in the Olympics um, are, are less happy than bronze medalists, right? So the 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 silver medalists have framed the silver medal as a loss, right? I didn't get the gold. I wanted the gold, and you, you know we can forgive them for that. They were so close, right? Whereas the bronze medalists frame their medal as I meddled, right? I, you know, I, I came this close to not being on that podium at all, right? Now it's not, no one taught them to do that. It's just a kind of spontaneous um, way of, of framing that sort of comes with the territory, I think because of that cutoff point below three, uh, three medals. But um, any one of us can do that. You know, if you don't get that promotion you wanted, you frame it as a, okay, I learned something or I'm going to get feedback that helps me do better next time. Right? It's, it's, Using learning to think, I think, think more like a scientist, like learning to think about it as data, as as useful information that helps me chart my path forward rather than as judgment, rather than as a sort of um, evidence of my shortcomings. Yeah. And and then the enemy there, of course, is fear. And what we know about our work is, is you can't improvise well when you're in fear. You also can't improvise well when you're in judgment of self or judgment of others. And in all the beginning improv classes, when, when you look at the exercises that we do, so many, like mirroring exercise, counting bricks in a wall, they're all sort of mind, almost mindfulness techniques of ways yes. of like, empty yourself, empty yourself, just rid, rid yourself of that fear. Then we're going to make you do some stuff over and over again that's going to be ridiculous and we're all going to applaud it uh, in order to just, it's almost like taking it out of your body as much as your mind, right? That, that right. stuff that you've got when you right. sense danger is coming by and then you realize it was nothing, you know? Yes, yes, yes. And then it's sort of like you have to, you, you automatically reframe because you thought it was danger, then it isn't. And it's sort of like, oh, I feel, I feel foolish almost. Mm-hmm. You know, like, mm-hmm. Even little danger, like you think you're late for something and then you realize, oh, you had the time wrong and it's just this huge flood of relief um, if it's something important. And then, you know, you the world hasn't changed, but how you're no. thinking about it has. And, and and some people laugh because of that. And I think there's yes. some. Yeah. My wife has done some studying around this this area that that's that's a that's some of part of where laughter came with, which is this this release of oh that wasn't that thing I thought it was. And when you talk you talk about Dr. Jennifer Heemstra at Emory, and in her lab she talked about uh, normalizing silly mistakes by laughing at them. And I'm like, yeah, okay, there there's the power of humor, you know, in in that. Right. that that's a real solve, I think. Yeah, it's a real solve. And I love um, Jen Heemstra. She says to her, you know, lab members, we're going to fail all day, right? And she's right. And something like, you know, 70 plus percent of experiments run in a leading edge chemistry lab like hers are going to end in failure. The good hypotheses, but unfortunately, you're in new territory where scientists haven't been before. So you may be wrong. And Turns out, you know, maybe 70% of the time you're wrong and you have to like embrace the results as results, you know, not as condemnation, but as data, data that you get to use faster than anyone else in the world because you're the first to get to that data to pivot, right? To to reorient. What next? When I'm talking about this stuff in a, in a corporate setting, a lot of times, if, if I'm thinking that they're not going to believe the improv guy and they're not maybe interested in the Harvard professor, I go, well, let's look at batting averages of Major League Baseball. If you're a 300 hitter, 
you're you're great. That also means you're not hitting it seventy percent of the time. Right, right. You're a hall of famer, right? Hall of famer, and everyone's like, oh, all right, that kind of makes sense. I'm like, yeah, now take take that. And these take and these it to heart. Are, yeah, and they're elite. They are elite. Three hundred, which means right. the rest of us are really hitting right. like one hundred. We're not even anywhere close. We're not even close. Um. I want to talk about intelligent failures. This is, this is, uh, I think, an important thing. And you talk about four attributes uh, of intel- intelligent failures. Can you kind of take us through, through those? Sure. So they're in new territory, right? There's just no way to look it up on the Internet and get the, get the answer, get the knowledge you need uh, to figure out what's going to work in advance of, of acting. They're in pursuit of a goal. So it's not just sort of playing around. I'm not anti-playing around, but the yeah. intelligent failure is in pursuit of some valued goal. And, you know, that could be a new drug to cure a kind of cancer, or that could be finding a life partner, right? It's a goal um, that you're hoping uh, to make progress toward. It's, you've done your homework. It's hypothesis driven. Right? It's mm-hmm. not a random set of actions to see which ones stick, right? So it's it's a it's a thoughtful experiment in that sense. And finally, it's as small as possible, right? You don't utilize more resources or time than necessary to get the insight you need to get from the experiment. I don't think we talked about this last time. Uh, and I don't know if you know the way Second City is set up. And, and this, this started in 1959. So this has not changed since then. These are all the founders. That we do two acts of scripted, generally scripted content, which is the show that people buy the tickets to. <laughs> and then, uh, and, and this happened last night, and I was explaining to the folks I was with here is uh, the actors come out and they close the show, you know, thank you for coming. And then they say, hey, you know, um, traditionally we we do a little bit more. We, we, we have this improvised third act. Do, do you want to stay? You don't have to. And then, and then most, most people stay. And, and this third act, this improv set, which is what we call it, I would also call it a failure lab, um, the conditions are such. It's free, so people can come in off the street. Uh, the actors go into more casual clothing. Um, uh, it, it's, it's all these sort of signals that are given that this is going to be different because, in fact, the failure rate is going to go way up. But it becomes people's favorite moment because mm-hmm. they're also, it's the, it's the high wire act. And, right. and, but I don't think it works without all those other signals that we gave off because they're going to, I bought this ticket to this professional show and, and now, now this is less professional. And that seems to encompass some of those things that you're talking about. Yeah, I think that's right. And there's, there's um, the contrast is, is necessary, right? So, you know, the intelligent failure, I don't think you'd be a very happy person or scientist if you had a hundred percent intelligent failures, you know, which isn't impossible, but after a while, you're just, you're, you're in the wrong game. There's something wrong with your hypotheses, right? Because the reason why they work, um, the reason why you're okay with them, because they're still disappointing, right? Make no mistake. But you're okay with them as a, you know, elite scientist or athlete or you name it, because you know they're helping you get to the the real the discoveries that are the successes. So it's that contrast is always ever present in your mind. And that's something I think the rest of us have to learn how to how to sort of keep aware. Like when things go wrong, it's okay. Like, okay, that went wrong, but the only reason I even recognize it is wrong is that so much in my life or work or project is going right. But- well, and you, and, and I think what, what the unfortunate thing in business is, and you mentioned that whether it's Toyota or IDEO or there, there are companies that have ingrained these things inside their systems. I would say 
I think we're probably correct in saying most companies don't. Most companies don't. It is by far the exception, not the rule. And that's a, and that's a shame problem. in a volatile, uncertain, complex world, right? Yeah. <laughs> because in a way, it's it's almost a re- stubborn refusal to deal with reality because reality right. is things will go wrong. Some of it because of human error, which, again, we'll do our very best to catch and correct. But some of it, much of it, because certain combinations of events and people have never come together in the same way before. And some of it, because you're genuinely in new territory and this is a good thing, not a bad thing, you know, that people are pushing themselves or pushing their projects. My buddy, Melissa Daimler wrote a book on culture and she talks about the fact that culture is happening, whether you're doing anything about it or not. And I think that's that's the same thing here. That's right. All the failures going on, you're just ignoring it. And okay, right. you know, but it, that that's if you want to be an innovative company, if you want to be a creative company, and those are two different things. And, yep. and cre- creativity being that that really messy place where the failures are taking mm-hmm. place, mm-hmm. And, and and the innovation part is where yeah, you know, you can't have failures. That's you know, the the gun's got to fire, the the script has to be completed, whatever. That's all part of it. But you don't get that part without the beginning part. Right. And the failures are the stepping stones on the way to that beautiful, successful script. Um, there were failures. You know, there was plenty of paper thrown in the wastebasket along the way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like I, having written a book, the the amount of stuff that got thrown away. And I'm sure you do that, too, which is like, why did I just so wait much. 80 so pages much. on this thing that right, makes no right. sense? Um, I'd love for you to describe an exercise you do with your students that involves the seven by 10 <laughs> grid patterned rug. This this. This is fun and it feels very improvisational. So I want you to talk about it. It is. It is very improvisational. So I'll get a, it's, it's, it's this gray rug with a grid on it. And it's, it's essentially nine squares by six squares. So you can picture that in your, in your mind, if you're listening and, um, and the, the exercise, you, you have a team and the exercise is for them to get from one side of the rug to another. Here's what you need to know about the rug. Some of those squares, not all of them, but you know, maybe about half of them make a loud beep sound, an electronic beep sound when you step on them. Your team's task is to find the non-beeping path through the rug, right? So you get to, you get from one side to the other on a path of, of sort of stepping stone squares that don't beep. There is only one way to find out which ones beep and which ones don't, right? You can't look at it and figure it out. You've got to step on them and see what happens, right? And then kind of memorize the data. And these, it's, it's pretty straightforward, right? It's not yeah. terribly intellectual. It's kind of no. obvious what the, what the solution is. I mean, not what the solution is, but how to get to that solution. Mm-hmm. It's what people call trial and error, which I prefer to call trial and fa- failure. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but anyway, so what happens is, you know, again and again and again, I've done this just hundreds of times, students will you know, step tentatively, maybe their first step is like a quiet square and they're thrilled, you know, and then they step on their, then they're on the front row, wondering which is the next step to next square to step on. And they'll hesitate. Now, oh, I, I forgot to mention it's a time limited, you know, they have 20 yeah, minutes yeah. to solve the problem, right? So, so just pausing to kind of contemplate which of those gray squares might be quieter than the other is not useful with, mm-hmm. you know, so, so it's, but, but it happened. And so intellectually, I think it's obvious that it's not useful, but emotionally there's these endless pauses. So when I debrief it, I say, well, what, you know, what were you thinking when you're sort of on that front row, you know, you, there's the place where no data exists yet. And um, 
he'll always say one of two things, right? Number one is I didn't want to make a mistake, right? It's like, well, you know, technically this is just an aside, but technically that's not a mistake, right? It's, it's new information in new territory. There's literally no way to get that information other than by stepping on it. It's only a mistake if you had information already and you didn't follow it. Um, and then the other answer I'll sometimes hear is like, I didn't want to let the team down or, you know, I sort of, they'll say something related to being embarrassed when everyone's watching them make this, you know, this mistake. And both of those reactions show a kind of fundamental misunderstanding of the task and the nature of new territory, because in new territory, first of all, it's not a mistake to get yeah. new data that no one could get any other way. Um, and second of all, you're not letting the team down. You're helping the team. You're the one out there, you know, taking it for the team, making a step, seeing if it beeps or not. And the team, of course, the teams are, you know, they're kind of applauding when you have a quiet square and they're kind of not booing, but groaning, you know, in empathy, but they're groaning when you yeah. have the, the beeping square. And rationally, what the team should be doing is sort of applauding either way, right? It's all data. It's all information to help you solve uh, the puzzle. But it's a, it's a, um, it's a short exercise to kind of drive home how hard innovation is. And I'd say how hard improvisation is because there's all these, you know, habits and and wiring in us that wants us to be perfect. And I want to get it right the first time. I want to be that person who magically intuits that path, that squiggly path through the maze. Like that would never happen. You know, it would be a one in a million um, lucky guess, which won't, would not happen. So um, we're, we're wired the wrong way for uncertainty. This is, there's an, there's an improv exercise this made me think of called uh, thank you statues. And we, get a, uh, the group in a circle and we ask one person to go in the center and strike a statue pose. And then we say, okay, so, so it's anyone's job to come in and tap that person out and say, and they'll say, thank you. And they'll move back to the circle, go. And no one moves. <laughs> and, then, and then maybe someone does. And they're, and then we're like, okay, why, why didn't you move all the reasons you say like, well, I didn't, I, you know, I didn't want to look foolish. Or I didn't want that. And, and then we ask the person in the center, what do you want? They're like, I just want someone to tap me out. Right. Everything you're thinking about is unimportant to me. I just need you. And then we say, okay, so now with that language and with that understanding, we're going to do this again. And then the energy that they feel is everyone's going in and tapping the person out. And we're like, it feels good. It literally feels good to do as a collective, just kind of work together to, to figure this stuff out. And I think that's, and again, embodied, because they're, they're embodying the, their fear before. It's like, yeah, but also your body's going to feel real good when you're doing this stuff together. Right. And and you also lose, you lose, I think we are happiest when we lose our self-consciousness. Yes. We're, we're there with the team or for the audience or for the goal. I mean, there's there's all sorts of things that are on our mind, but it's not how do I look, right? And right. whenever we can escape the how am I doing, how do I look, am I imperfect or perfect, we're happier. Yeah. Yeah. I was talking to our mutual friend, Kim Scott, the other day. We uh, were catching up and I was talking about reading the book and she blurred the book. And you both struggled with this this thing, which is interesting because after Kim wrote Radical Candor, great success, and started doing the work as one does of going, oh, I wonder if I wasn't considering 
how someone who's not in a certain position right. might feel about that term. And you talk about that in this book with psychological safety. Yes. Yes. I mean, well, psychological safety and the sort of permission to fail. And the permission uh, to fail, yeah. No, and, and certainly this is something that I'm thinking more and more about is the, what I talk about in the book is the unequal license to fail. Right. And and different, um, you know, different groups, different different identity groups and different past life experiences can make the the experience of failure, small and large, just far more fraught for some uh, than than others. Yeah. And I and, and let's be honest, the white male fail. I, I in my career have been allowed to fail so much more than my wife, for yep. example. But knowing that is is half the battle. Just knowing yeah. it and and um, being being mindful, being aware, being generous. Um, I think part of the uh, you know an underlying theme in the book is um, more generosity, right? More generosity of spirit for ourselves, of course, but but also for each other. Yeah, I was speaking to my wife. I remember it was before Ann and I were married. We both worked at Second City, and this is in 1992. I became the producer of Second City. Not qualified at all and should not have been offered the job at 26, but I had it. And I went to Ann, who's my friend at the time, and I said, do you have a piece of advice for me? And this was her advice. I remember it to this day, which is when you make a a mistake, apologize for it. Oh, so good. So good. So so, good. And you talk about this, that like a good apology is a good thing. Right. I don't think we're taught that. Right? No, I don't think we are. I don't think we are. I mean, you're taught, you know, your parents might say, you know, say you're sorry, but it's perfunctory and not, and not um, healing in the way that it, that it can be. How did you learn that? Or did you, did it take a while? (laughs) Um, I think it took a while. And and I, (laughs) you know, the first thing that came to mind when you asked that question is, well, I read it in the literature. It's like, Ooh, is that, you know, I read, I read the sort of the research literature last year on, on apologies. Like who knew, you know, it's really interesting. Well, like gratitude, right. It's like, I read about it. Am I, you know, and to the point that, that, um, a lot of the habit literature and, and that I've picked up is, is just being really intentional. So, so for me, it's setting out my workout clothes the night before. And for me, it's also when my feet touch the ground, sort of whether it's a blessing or, or something I'm happy for, for the day, do, doing these things, those little things have been kind of instrumental in my mental health. Let's just put it that way. Positively. Very, very much so. And I suspect that apologies are instrumental in mental health too. Right? I think it's, so. a, it's a huge sigh of relief when you've, when it's out in the open, you've said you've, you've taken some responsibility for the misstep. Um, even if, even if you really believe your part and it was small, it wasn't non-existent and to take responsibility for that is quite empowering um, and of yourself and healing of others. Yeah. This is the thing I've talked about with my boss here. I have a, a fairly new boss and he, he right away. One of his things was like, if there's a, if there's a mistake or a problem, just let me know right away. That right is away. the most important yeah. thing. And yeah. this is now it's so knee jerk for me that even if I, even if I think that might not be a problem, it's like, I'm going to err on the side of saying it. And, and it always pays off. It, it is never not paid off. But even to that point, I remember this yesterday. I had a little thing where I was like, someone called me on a thing that seemed a little bit weird. And I debated sending him the note like three times. I'm like, just send him a note. And he's like, hey, thanks for telling me this. That was it. And I'm like, oh, okay. 
so again, to our earlier point, I don't think we can stress enough how hard this is. I, I could not agree more, right? This yeah. is hard. This is unnatural. Um, yeah. but, but so much of what we need to do to ha- be effective and successful and happier is unnatural, right? Our natural tendencies and habits don't get us very far. No, no. All right. So we always end the podcast with uh, a guest who's been with us before, who's given, share, already shared a yes hand story, uh, to tell us a thank you because story. So in the, liter- the, the literature to come, uh, next year this paper will come out, we ran a, a study with people. Um, how do they stay inside difficult conversations longer? And they use this prompt, thank you, because they thank the person for sharing an unpopular opinion, uh, which sits off the gratitude part of the brain. And then they find something, anything inside what they're saying that they potentially could agree with to keep this going. And, and overwhelmingly, the evidence has been people stay in the conversations longer. They learn more about the person across from them. The reason the study is taking forever is because we decided to try it with just one person doing it. And so far, it works. It still works. Wow. Um, which is pretty wild. Uh, and, and when I talk about this with, with audiences, of, of course, in the world we live in right now, uh, that it, it feels pretty radical because um, not a lot of people want to thank you because they're way out of things. It's, it's a lot it's of the true. It's so, true. So, and that is going to make it hard to think of a, of a story. Right? Yeah, because it's I not mean, what happens. Because it's not what happens. So, I mean, I could say I, I have two stories in my mind. Um, yeah. Neither one of them can I say I responded optimally, okay. which I think this would be. Yeah. Um, but here's the first one. So two friends of mine, this is fairly recent, both okay. fairly recent, two friends of mine, um, very, you know, people I care a lot about, close friends, um, had a major sort of um, feud with each other based on one of them um Con- but believing that the other had done some unthinkable things with respect to a kind of a new person coming into the community. Okay. Um, and, um, you know, when you really, when I really sort of learned from both sides, what, why they were so mad at the other uh, person, I could see um, both sides. And um, one of my two friends was more um by this point, more willing to sort of just move forward with the friendship and not, you know, um, not hold the past against um, the other. And and the other um, was just like, no, I just don't even think I can sort of talk mm-hmm. to him anymore, blah, blah, blah. So I the one so I, that was disappointing to me. Um, and so I think the thank you because story would be, you know, thank you to this person for your high standards, you know, that held very high standards of what he thought of and what legitimately uh, as ethical behavior is sort of the right way to treat someone else, to talk about someone else. And, um, and because I also have high standards around how you treat others, I'm disappointed Right. I'm disappointed and, and sad about your hard difficulty in forgiving. Yeah. No, no, no. Friend, I get that. Right? I think that's a because lovely, that's a lovely I know way where to... it comes from, right? It had yeah. to do with the thing. One of the things I love about friend one, um, the most high standards is just an amazing generosity 
in yeah. every way. Um, and I think uh, that generosity was, he, he, he was having trouble having that generosity include the fact that other people are fallible human beings and will make mistakes. And, you know, in a, in a sense, the one who's usually not as, um, you know, um, not quite as expansive was being more expansive, interestingly. So, um, so maybe that's, um, you know, I think it's a little hard to describe and explain, but. Oh, no, I think you, <laughs> you <laughs> I mean, look, we all have these things that happen where we're like, I'm kind of seeing it this way and, and, and they're seeing it this way. And so I think the bridge that you built is the right one, which is no, no, no. Like we're, we're the most important thing, probably we're in agreement on. Yep, that's right. So, and then, and then immediately you've given them another place to go. You've given that's them. Right. That's right. Is it kind of anchoring, I guess, but kind of a noble anchoring, perhaps? Yeah, and and can those high standards encompass the ability to forgive? Yes, as well, and and move forward because I haven't yet met a perfect person, right? And nor nor have <laughs> my friends. Nor right? and nor do I want to. Right? <laughs> that yeah. Would be a, <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't that be awful? Be no improv, no humor. No, there's no there's if everything's going right, there's nothing funny happening. Right. No one got into comedy because they're well-adjusted. This is a thing <laughs> I've learned over time. Uh, the book is called Right Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing Well. Uh, Amy Evanson, thank you for coming on the pod. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Getting BSN is produced by Second City Works and WGN Radio. Our editor is Oridian Fierro from WGN. We get support at the Second City from Colleen Fahey, Mike Farinaccio, and Emma Smith. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. For more information about the Second City, you can go to www.secondcity.com or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com.
Once survived.